Well, grab your Bible and go to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Well, we are beginning a series um, this week in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and chapter um, 2. Now, before we jump in, um, if you don't have one of these, this is a scripture journal that we purchase for everyone um, who visits, everyone who comes. And so these are on the back table back there. Um, in the middle, you've got a little reading plan. It's on this first page, and then the scripture on the left, and some blank pages on the right. And so if you don't have one of those, go ahead and um, grab one from the table. Now, I need you to go to a second place, and I was just going to put it on the screen. Or you can just listen to me read it, um, or you can go there yourself. But keep your finger in First Samuel chapter 1. I also want you to go to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Um, Acts chapter 13, there's a few verses in there that are basically going to give us an overview of what we're going to talk about today. Um, And then we'll, just forewarning, we're covering 15 chapters in the book of 1 Samuel today. Um, So we've got a lot to cover. Um, We're not going to do that every single week, but much of today is just helping us understand where we are in the Bible and understanding Uh, what we're going to talk about in the life of David. So we've got to do a lot of legwork to get there. And so Acts 13, verses 16 through 23 are going to give us a good overview um, of where we are today. So let me read that for us. It says, So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, He raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. I love that clear picture. All right, so I want to start off today with a little audience participation, okay? I know you guys love it when we do this kind of things, Um, but I want you to turn to your neighbor. This is very simple. I want you to turn to your neighbor, and I want you to share with them, so someone around you, or maybe someone you're with, or maybe even go across the room and find someone you don't know. How about that? Uh, And I want you to turn to somebody, and I want you to tell them the first thing that you think of when you hear the name King David. So what do you think of? What's the first thing? When you hear the name King David. So go ahead, I'll give you about 20 or 30 seconds to share with one another. King David. Take about 10 more seconds. Okay, I think that's probably plenty of time to have shared something. So let's just do a poll here. Okay, let's just do a poll. How many of you said something obvious like king? You might say king. Oh, good for y'all. Okay. How many of you said uh, something like shepherd? 
Nobody? How many of you said something like Jesus or son of David? A few of you, okay. How many of you said Psalms? What did y'all say? (laughs) David and Goliath, okay. So more of the stories of David. How many of you said something like adulterer? A few. Or murderer? Yeah, okay. (laughs) Um, How many of you said something like he was a man after God's own heart? Something like that. Yeah, a few of you. Uh, Now... All of those would have been correct, and I'm sure there's many things that you said that I didn't mention, Um, but I had you do that activity because I want us to understand that the character of David is complicated. He's a complicated character, right? Um, We are beginning this series called After God's Heart, and as you can tell, as we go throughout this series, you're going to see the many layers of the character of David. The, The life of David has everything you could ever want in a story, okay? It has... Uh, Political drama, there's all kinds of political drama throughout this story. There is a war, there's quest for power. I mean, there is like crazy, insane relational drama. Uh, You're going to be wondering, are we watching, listening to Young and the Restless, right? I mean, there's just some drama in this. That's a soap opera, by the way, just in case you didn't know. Um, You've got the fall of a hero, you've got the redemption of a hero. I mean, this book is fascinating, and we're not going to be able to cover every single verse uh, in our gatherings, but if you got the reading plan, by the time we finish, you will have read all of First and Second Samuel. During our time together, we'll be looking at key moments, and we'll talk about everything that's in the Scripture, but we won't be going uh, methodically word by word. Um, we'll be looking at key moments. So I'm going to do my best, specifically today, to communicate clearly, because we have a lot to talk about, because um, I want us to be positioned well for next week when we're going to begin to slow down for a long time. Uh, So next week, it will begin to slow down. But where we are in the Bible, just in your Bible today, um, it's this amazing pivot point in history. And so let me very quickly give you the uh, cliff notes of where we are in the Bible. This is going to sound daunting. It's only going to take a few minutes, right? So in the book of Genesis, um, we see the creator create. God creates the stars. He creates the animals. He creates the sea. He creates man and woman in his image. They are created unique and with dignity for his glory. They are to live lives of worship and fellowship with their God. And that lasts for about a chapter and a half, right? It doesn't last very long. By Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have disobeyed God and everything is broken. They are eternally separated from God. Everything that was was broken. The earth is broken. The relationship between humans and animals is broken. The relationship between uh, humanity and God, it's, it's broken. Everything's messed up. Everything's broken. But in Genesis 3.15, God gives a promise, okay? He gives a promise. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And in that, we have a promise that goes all the way through the Old Testament. And here's the promise. Someone is coming. Someone is coming. Someone is coming. And in the chapters that follow in Genesis, you see two parallels. You see the consequences of sin, that humanity is depraved, and instead of worshiping God, they worship themselves. But you also see throughout the Old Testament the promises of God unfolding, and that starts to take shape through a man named Abraham. That in Genesis 12, God came to Abraham, and he said, hey, I'm going to bless you, and through you, you will bless all the nations. From your line, Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. Someone is coming, Abraham that will bring blessing and salvation. So God gives Abraham two promises. He says, I will give you a son, 
and I will give you land, and that promise is passed down from generation to generation, that you get two more generations from Abraham. You get Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from there, you get 12 sons. And what you see from Genesis 12 through Genesis 50 is the most dysfunctional family that's ever existed. All right, if you've read Genesis 12 through 50, right? Um, So there is lying, they kill each other, they are just an absolute hot mess, but the promise remains all throughout the, the chapters. Someone is coming. Someone is coming. This family, they're a mess, but you can see God's promises. You can see God's providence through it all. Eventually, the people that come from Abraham's family, they end up exiled in Egypt, and they are enslaved. And it looks like all hope has been lost. So God raises up a man named Moses to lead them out of Egypt, and God takes them into the wilderness, and it's there that God makes a covenant with his people again. And he gives them the law, 613 laws, to be exact, and these laws do two things. They reveal the character of God to the people of God. Do not lie. Why? Because God is not a liar. So the law reveals the character of God, but it also reveals our intended nature, that God did not intend for us to be liars. But the problem is, the stain of sin is so deep that no one can keep God's law. The separation from God is inescapable. And over and over, they reject God, they reject his law, and they worship idols. But again, all throughout the story, you are being reminded of the promise. Someone is coming. I've made a covenant with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I will not desert you. And so eventually, God puts the people of God in the promised land, and he puts them on a piece of real estate that would be a beacon of light to the nations. All around them, the, naked, uh, the nations are surrounding them. And then you get to the book of Judges. Anybody in here, like, be honest. Have you ever read the book, book of Judges? It's a tough book. I mean, some people say Leviticus. I think there's beautiful things in Leviticus. Judges is tough for me. It's a dark, dark book. Um, it covers hundreds of years of darkness in the history of God's people. Idol worship is completely embraced. God is rejected. There's deceit. There's sexual morality. And in Judges, it really would seem that all hope has been lost. It covers 589 years of darkness. And then you get Ruth, and then you get First and Second Samuel, where we are today. And it's here that the narrative of the Old Testament begins to slow down. I mean, you could hear it. I mean, there's so much that I just went through in three minutes So much happened, and that was centuries and centuries and years and years. And you get to 1 and 2 Samuel, and God begins to slow down the story. It's really cool. And we will see in this book uh, the lives of a man named Samuel, a man named Saul, and a man named David. That God begins to slow down the story, and he begins to pour gasoline on that flicker of light. That flicker of light is the reminder of the promise. In the midst of the darkness, God has given his people a covenant, a promise. Someone is coming. And in First and Second Samuel, he pours gasoline on that flicker and says, here's who he is. And we get to see the story of redemption exposed. The promise that I have not forgotten you. I will not forsake you. And he exposes the plan of redemption. This story, it's about the story of a king, King David. But in reality, this story isn't about King David at all. It's about the promised king that is coming. The king of kings King Jesus, and you will see him foreshadowed every single week. In every story in this, this book, First and Second Samuel, Jesus is there. There is something about him. 
God is proclaiming through the life of David, you're going to see the king of kings. And it's going to be so much fun um, doing it. So I can imagine, side note, um, that where you walk in, the way that you walk in today, some of you might feel like you're in the book of Judges, right? There's just this little flicker of light that you're holding on to. Here's my prayer for us as a church, is that God would slow our story down. That God would slow the story down and we would be able to see, we would be able to hear his promises. And it would pour gasoline on that flicker. And we would come alive as the people of God, as we interact with his word and we devote ourselves to him in prayer, that we would humbly come before the king of kings and we would hear him. We would listen to him, and we would follow him, and he would make us explode with life. So that's my prayer. Now, what's interesting is that this book doesn't start with King Saul. It doesn't start with King David. It doesn't even start with Samuel. It starts with Samuel's mom. It doesn't start with a great battle. It doesn't start with a great king coming to save Israel. It starts with the prayers of a hurting woman named Hannah. I love that. In the midst of the grand story about prophets and kings, God zooms in on a barren woman who's filled with pain. And the book starts by talking about her husband, Elkanah. So look at 1 Samuel chapter 1, starting in verse 2. And in verse 2, it says, talking about Elkanah, it says he had two wives. All right, we got to stop there, okay? Because uh, this is brushed off too many times and no one talks about it. Um, I, this needs to be clarified. Does the Bible approve of polygamy, having multiple spouses? No, and you've probably heard from somewhere, someone at some point, that um, the Bible has people with multiple spouses in it. Well, to be clear, at no point does God approve of, nor does he suggest that it is a good idea to have multiple spouses. The book of Genesis literally says the two shall become one. The New Testament is especially clear about it. Hey, don't do this. And in fact, if you go through each case study of someone who had multiple spouses, you'll see that it was a disaster for that person, right? No one is happy. No one is satisfied. Having So to be clear from the pulpit, polygamy is a bad idea. Don't do it. The Bible says no. But the reality is there were many people who did have multiple wives in the Old Testament. So I just want to clarify that. The text goes on in verse 2, and it says, the name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. I think that's how you say it. Uh, and Peninnah had children, and Hannah had no children. So you see the reason why the man had uh, two wives here. You get the idea that he married Hannah first, but she couldn't have children. So he married uh, this other lady. I'm not going to try to say her name again. Children during this time were everything. It's who you handed your property over to. It's who you handed your money over to. Um, everything you had went to them. But it's interesting. By the time you get to 1 Samuel, you start to see a trend in the scriptures. I don't know if you noticed this. God has a habit of using barren women to do his wonderful works. You notice that? Sarah in Genesis 12, Rebecca, Genesis 25, Rachel, Genesis 29, Samson's mom in Judges 13. That for whatever reason, God uses women, specifically barren women, in key moments in his redemptive history. It's just interesting. Elizabeth, Luke chapter 1, right? Over and over he does this. And I was just thinking, okay, why does God do that? And I don't, I mean, this is just an opinion. It's just a thought. It's just me thinking out loud. Um, but all throughout Scripture, you see that many times when God does something through a human, many times the starting point is when someone acknowledges their complete dependence on God. 
Like, you ever been in a moment where you cannot survive unless you depend on the Lord? You, you felt like that before? Been in that moment where if I do not surrender, I'm not going to survive. I've got nothing but him. And it's many times in that place where we begin to see God work. I mean, look at what she says in verse 10 in chapter 1. It says, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. I mean, can you hear the pain in that? The, the weeping, the desperation. Is it okay to struggle with your circumstances and bring them to the Lord? Yeah, you bet it is. He is glorious enough to handle them and he wants to. Now, at first, it looks like she's making a bargain, right? Uh, well, God, if you do this, then I'll do this, which I definitely don't recommend, but I think there's a little bit more going on here. What some might call a bargain, you could also call complete surrender. I mean, she calls herself his servant three different times. There's humility in her prayer. She calls him the Lord of hosts. Do you see that? It's the first time anyone calls God that in the scriptures. Uh, the Lord of hosts means you are the God over heaven's armies. You are the sovereign Lord who commands the heavens, and I am your humble servant. You are majestic, God, the king, and I am a meek woman. God, please help me. If you keep reading, her husband says to her, hey, aren't I better than having sons, Hannah? Which you're like, come on, bro, don't say that. Super not helpful. Um, the priest Eli, um, which we'll talk more about him in a minute, but the priest in this story, Eli, he thinks she's drunk because she's praying by moving her lips and not saying anything out loud. So he approaches her. And then in verse 15, Hannah tells Eli, no, my Lord, I am a trouble. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have, I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. I love that. I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Notice, she doesn't lash out at these people. She doesn't, um, she doesn't you know, bark at them for their ignorance. She doesn't fall into bitterness. She just pours everything she has into the Lord because he, he's the only one with the power, authority, and compassion to really take on that pain. And in verse 20, God hears her prayers. It says, in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And in an act of faith, she follows through on the promise that she made to God. She said, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. And so he gives her Samuel and she surrenders her son to a life of service in the house of the Lord. And when she does that, she breaks into song in chapter two. And chapter two is one of the most important chapters in all of this story, okay? Uh, and because the, the song that she sings is basically the story arc of our book, First and Second Samuel. She says in 1 Samuel 2, 4, the bowels of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who, have full, uh, who, who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. And there we have the themes of the whole book and our series. Theme number one is the Lord is king. 
In a book about kings, this book is about the king of kings. He's the true king. He kills and he brings to life. He has all authority. Theme number two, the humble will be exalted and the proud will be brought low. You're going to see that happen over and over again, that all throughout this book, the proud are rejected by God and the humble are accepted. And then you see our last theme in verse 10 in chapter two. Verse 10, that God will raise up his anointed king. He says, or she says, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. You want to guess what that word anointed is in Hebrew? You're never going to believe it. Messiah. Messiah. It's the first time the, the title Messiah appears. Remember that flicker of light. Someone is coming. Someone is coming. Someone is coming. And now, now God tells us who. Who's coming? The Messiah. Now, let me just summarize the next several chapters. And I hope you are following along in your reading guide. Because if you didn't and you don't know what's coming, be prepared to, for some stories. Okay, There is nothing boring about the chapters that you were supposed to read um, this past week. Um, now, in this next moment, we get a window into Eli's family. He's the priest. So before God goes, is going to set up a king, he's going to purify his house. Okay? Uh, 1 Peter 1, 4, 17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. That phrase, for judgment to begin at the household of God, it's a reference to Ezekiel and Malachi. Well, God will purify the place where he dwells, that he will purify and cleanse the holy place. In the Old Testament, many times it's a temple. In the New Testament, it's a church. And here in 1 Samuel, before he changes a nation, he's going to change his church. And Eli's family, the ones who are running the place where God dwells, they are not good people. I mean, Scripture literally calls Eli's sons worthless. Look, look at 1 Samuel 2.12. I'm blown away by this. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. I don't know why I think that's so funny. Um, but side note, can the church be led by worthless men who don't know the Lord? According to Scripture, yes. See, Hophni and Phinehas, Phinehas Eli's sons. These two guys were abusing their power by taking the burnt offerings and eating them for dinner. They were also sleeping with the women who were serving at the temple. So get, can God allow wickedness to persist in his house for a time? Yeah, he will. God is patient. He is a God of mercy. But after a time, if you refuse to repent, then you will be, not be met with patience, but you will be met with judgment. And interestingly, God does not confront Hophni and Phinehas, but rather he confronts their dad, Eli. And he essentially says to Eli, hey, why have you valued your sons more than me, Eli? And so God pronounces judgment on them and reveals his plan to purify his house. In verse 34, uh, chapter 2, it says, And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And as you get into chapter 3, you see the Lord that, that the Lord begins to call out to Samuel. He begins to raise him up. The Lord calls out, hey, Samuel. He's like, Eli, did you call my name? He's like, no, bro, go back to sleep. 
So the Lord calls out to Samuel a second time, Samuel. He's like, he's like, Eli, did you call my name? He's like, no, go back to bed. And then finally, the Lord calls out to Samuel a third time, and it says that the Lord came and stood. I love that. And he tells Samuel in verse 11, listen to what he says. Behold, this is chapter 311, I am about to do a thing in Israel in which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And as the story progresses, you see Samuel rise, and you see Eli fall. The Philistines attack the nation, and Israel loses. But here's something interesting about this whole scene with uh, the Philistines attacking. The Philistines attack, and the nation of Israel loses. But the scripture never says that the Philistines defeated Israel. You never see that in there. It says the Philistines attacked, Israel was defeated, and then in chapter 4, 3, they ask, why did the Lord defeat us? Isn't that interesting? God does not hide behind anybody. It's his plan. He will do as he pleases. So the people decide, hey, let's go get the ark out of storage, okay? Um, Moses would carry the ark in battle, and they would destroy everyone. Let's just do what Moses used to do. And they try to use the ark for their own purposes, and they get absolutely destroyed, and they lose the ark to the Philistines. And here's where it just begins to crumble, okay? Um, Hophni and Phinehas die in the battle, just like God said they would. Someone runs back to tell Eli uh, that his two sons are dead. And what is, happens with Eli? He literally falls backwards in his chair, breaks his neck. This family just went from best to worst, y'all. I mean, it was just calamity. At the same time, Hoff, uh, Phinehas' wife was having a baby and she died. But before she dies, she names her son Ichabod. Is anyone here named Ichabod? Good. That is the worst name in the history of names. The name means literally no glory. It's a metaphor for what is happening right now in the people of God, that there is no glory. And so it just, I mean, everything hits the fan, right? The ark is gone. Um, Phineas Phineas and Hophni are dead. Eli's dead. Um, there's a baby named Dagon, um, and so it just goes crazy. In chapter 6, the Philistines have the ark, which has the covenant that God made with his people inside of it, and they put it right next to their god, Dagon. Um, they wake up the next day, and their god, Dagon, has fallen on his face before the ark. So, okay, no big deal. They prop him back up, and then the next day they come in, and Dagon is on the ground again, except this time he has no arms and he has no head. All, in chapter 5, 4, it says, only the trunk of Dagon was left. And then a plague breaks out among the Philistines. They start getting boils and tumors. There's a, literally a rat infestation. I mean, it's just chaos. And so they say, okay, we need to do a test. We need to figure out if it is the Israelite God who is causing all of this to happen. So what is the test that they think of? They're going to tie the ark to some cows that are milking. And if those cows run to Israel, then it was God who was causing all this to happen. But if they run to their babies, then it wasn't God. So obviously, what do you think happened? They ran towards the cows, right? Um, And and so what's the point? What's the point of this story? Because it's kind of a crazy story, right? God has all authority, and he will declare his glory in whatever way he pleases. In in 1 Samuel 6.20, they see the cows run to Israel, and it says, Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, this is what they say, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? 
He's Lord over the nations. The cows do a better job of preaching to the nations than the priests do. At the end of chapter 7, Samuel has grown into a holy man of God. There is peace in Israel. He builds an altar, and he calls it Ebenezer. Anyone here familiar with the hymn, Come Thou Founts? Here I raise my Ebenezer. Ebenezer means, till now the Lord has helped us. They are no longer in the days of Ichabod. They are now in the days of Ebenezer. The Lord has helped us. But when you get to chapter 8, the people of God are back to their old ways. And here's where our story begins to pick up. In chapter 8, verse 1, it says, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So this is a kind of a sad footnote for Saul. Samuel had grown up under wicked sons, uh, the wicked sons of Eli, and now Samuel has wicked sons of his own. And so the elders see a problem. What's going to happen when Samuel dies? And so they come to him in verse 4 in chapter 8. It says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. It's kind of it's rude. There, yes, they're a little black and white. Behold, you are old. And I love that it rhymes. Uh, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you, Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall rule over them. So the people of God, they demand a king to rule over them. Samuel's displeased by this, but more importantly, God tells Samuel, hey, it's not you that they're rejecting. Why does God say that? Is God anti-government? No, absolutely not. God is establishing government all over the scriptures, right? There's no king, there's no president, there's no dictator that rules without God's say-so. God is establishing government everywhere. Is God just anti-king? No. Way back in Deuteronomy, God anticipates a day when a king will rule God's people. So why does God respond like this when they ask for a king? It seems unfair. It's not the what that they ask for. It's the why. It's the why that they ask for it. We want a king that will rule us, provide for us. Everyone else has one. So we want one too. It's the same old story that all throughout the scriptures, we've seen it over and over again. God will provide for his people. He will lead his people. He will rule his people. There will be peace. There will be blessing. And then the people of God will decide that they would rather trust in human structures and man-made idols rather than trust God himself. It's not just that they want a king. They want, what they want is to replace the rule of God in their lives with something that they can control. Reality is, and it's the same for us, spiritual dependency scares us, and it scares them. So instead of going to the Lord in prayer and faith, they seek out a political solution. That continues today. We constantly go to things that aren't bad at their core, but in our flesh, we try to serve them as if they are the solution to our brokenness. I could go on and on with examples like this. That the what is okay, but the why is wrong. The most obvious in the context of our text today, is the solution of politics. 
that rather than seeking the heart of God, we seek putting all of our energy and worship into getting the right person elected. And don't mishear me. I'm not saying who you vote for doesn't matter. It absolutely does. It absolutely does. You should vote according to the call of God and according to the guidance of Scripture. That does matter, but the right person in office who writes the right laws will never revive our hearts. The revival of the heart, the revival of culture, is the work of God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. So politics isn't bad. It can be used for the glory of God. But when we make it our why, we've attempted to replace the power of God with a human solution. In chapter 7, think about it. The people of God are worshipers. There is peace, there is blessing, and the moment, the moment their future is threatened, the moment their future is threatened, they seek out human solutions. Give us a king. It's not just politics. We do this with family. We make family an idol. If if God's call is uncomfortable for me and my family, then we punt the call of God. We do this with work, we do this with looks, we do this with social status. We took good things and we make them the solution to our brokenness, and that's called an idol. We're worshiping something other than God because we think it can provide what God has provided. God essentially tells them, hey, this is what they do, bro. This is what they do. He says, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, they have been forsaken. The demand for a king is wrong because really it's a demand for an idol here. Yet, God in his mercy and in his providence says, hey, let them have one. Time and time, he takes our foolishness, our foolish desires, and he turns them for his glory and our good. So he says, let them have a king. And it actually starts off pretty smooth, right? We find out there's a man named uh, man from Kish in 1 Samuel 9.2. It says he, this man had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any other people. And so first impressions, Saul looks good. He's a good-looking dude, all right? He's taller than every... And there's actual academic studies that talk about how taller people are seen as more attractive. I'm 5'8", that's what my driver's license says. The average height of a male is 5'9", so I think God just wanted to make me humble for the rest of my life. Um, but Saul has all the externals of success. I don't have time to go too much into this, um, but all throughout the scripture, God will say over and over, hey, it's not the externals. Even Jesus will talk about this in the gospel in Mark. Um, It's not the externals that make someone great. Greatness is found in a heart that worships. What matters is your heart. And even today, we try to fix the externals in our lives to make us right before God to give the appearance of something, that we put on morality, we put on nice clothes, we chase money, we even strive for the perfect church attendance, but those things will never bring you righteousness. Only Jesus can bring you true righteousness. But here in 1 Samuel, Saul looks promising. The externals look good. And Saul is introduced, weirdly enough, through some lost donkeys. His dad loses some donkeys, and so he sends Saul to go find them. And Saul will spend three days, walks 20 miles, and he cannot find the donkey. And finally... Saul speaks, and something interesting I learned this week from the Hebrew scholar Robert Alter, is that often the first words of a character uh, in Hebrew, in Hebrew literature, reveals who they are. It reveals what they really care about. So here we get Saul's first words in 1 Samuel 9, 5. It says, when they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. So what are the first things you see from Saul? 
You see his indecision. Hey, maybe we should just go back. And you see insecurity. Maybe my dad's going to be worried about me. And in chapter 10, when it's time to crown, I'm skipping a lot here, but in chapter 10, when it's time to crown Saul king, they can't find him. They literally cannot find the dude. Finally, they have to ask the Lord where he is. Lord, where is Saul? And what does the Lord say? He's hiding in the baggage. Saul's anointed king. And Saul does what God said he was going to do. He saves his people from the Ammonites. Uh, The Ammonites were not the mightiest of people. It's like playing the Oakland A's in baseball. Uh, They're still a major league team, but it's the A's. You're expected to beat them. Uh, And after Saul defeats the Ammonites, there is rejoicing. You see Saul rise. This looks promising. And in chapter 12, Samuel stands in front of the people, and this is a really important text. Um, so, So underline it, listen to it. First, uh, chapter 12, Samuel stands in front of the people and, and Saul, and here's what he says. Verse 14, First Samuel 12. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your King And really what Samuel is doing here is he's giving a warning to the people and to Saul, don't forget who the real king is. Don't put your hope in the things of this world. Put your hope in me. And this is where you begin to see it fall apart for Saul. In chapter 10, Samuel had told Saul, hey, there will be a day when the Philistines are going to attack, but wait seven days before you do anything. Wait until I make the offerings. Wait until I make an offering before you act. And in chapter 13, the people of God see the Philistines' armies coming, and they get terrified. I mean, they're hiding in caves. Saul gets nervous, and he decides that he cannot wait for Samuel any longer, so he does the sacrifice himself. And Samuel shows up in chapter 13, verse 11, and here's what he says. It says, Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, well, when I saw the people were scattering for me, and you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not, this is what he says, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Saul, you had one job, trust God. And you, in your insecurity, chose to serve yourself. In this moment, it seems kind of harsh, right? It's just one mistake. But Samuel sees the truth. A man who will ditch God in the midst of difficulty is dangerous. It's not a safe leader to follow. And so Samuel tells him in 1 Samuel 13, 14, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. And here, from here, you see Saul's downfall. He doesn't trust God, and when you don't trust God, you will see indecision and you will see insecurity. And in chapter 15, uh, he tells, God tells him, hey, the, the Amalekites, who were some dark, dark people, y'all, In Genesis 15, God told Abraham, hey, you're about to live among the Amalekites. Avoid them until their iniquity is complete. The Amalekites were dangerous. They were dark. It would be an R-rated sermon for me to tell you what they did, right? And God tells Saul, hey, you got to wipe them out. Don't take any of their stuff. 
sacrifice the animals, destroy everything else. And yet what does Saul do? He takes their best animals for himself. He keeps the king as his trophy and Saul builds a monument to himself. It's ironic, right? It was insecurity that had him hiding in the baggage, but now it's ego that drives him to build a monument. See, insecurity and ego are two sides of the same coin, right? They're both centered on self. And Samuel says, hey, why didn't you listen to the Lord? And Saul says, I did. And Samuel says, then why can I hear the sound of goats? You were supposed to sacrifice all of these before the Lord. And, and so Saul says, well, I would have, I would have done that, but the people wanted them. Samuel basically says, I'm done with you. Saul half-heartedly apologizes. And then, and then Saul says, hey, just come back with me and honor me in front of the people. And that's the sickness of Saul. None of us are safe from it. I want approval from man more than I want to worship God. I want to be accepted more than I want to be obedient. I want glory from me than I, more than I want glory from God. Samuel turns to leave. Saul grabs him, rips away part of his cloak. And Samuel says, I love that. Hey, that's the kingdom. <laughs> you don't get to be king anymore. It's being torn away from you. And chapter 15 ends with, in verse 35, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And then look at this. And the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. Wow. I want to make sure we understand what Scripture means by that word regret. Some people will use this to say that God is capable of making mistakes or making a wrong decision, but it's not that simple. God's pretty clear in many places, such as number 23, that God is not a man that he should lie or change his mind. So to say that God makes mistakes is a misuse of Scripture. We use that term regret to mean, I shouldn't have done it. Oh, I shouldn't have had that double meat cheeseburger from McDonald's. Duh. This isn't regret in the sense of I shouldn't have done it. This is regret in the form of sorrow or grief. Sorrow or grief. God grieves our sin. It doesn't mean that he won't allow it or even use it for his purposes, but he is filled with sorrow when he sees the, sees the suffering and or the sin of his people. And Saul is not leading the people of God to worship God. He's filled with self-absorption. Saul is meant to be the picture of who God is. But he's leading the people, he's leading the people to worship himself and not God. God does not make mistakes in our lives, but we do see many places in Scripture where he will express sorrow or grief, regret, when we live lives of sin. So, long story short, to speed this up, next week we will jump into the story of David. We will see the anointing of David. But as we go throughout this series and we watch the story of David unfold, we're going to see that even David wasn't perfect. He's not. He had some real struggles. He had some real sin. He hurt some people. And we will be left with, will there ever be a true king? Will there ever be somebody worthy to be followed? But we will see that through David will come one, that we're not to forget the promise Someone is coming, someone is coming, someone is coming. Centuries later, an angel would appear to a virgin named Mary, and he will say to her in Luke 1.30, you don't have to go there, just listen to it. He says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And us of his kingdom, there will be no end. But the king that will come 
is filled with majesty, and he is humble. He lives a life of holiness. He controlled the winds and the waves with the words of his mouth. He healed the sick. He made the lame walk. He brought the dead back to life, and he submitted himself to the cross, an instrument of death. And as he laid on that cross, he said, it is finished. And with that, the line of David, the line of Abraham, was complete. The king that was promised all throughout the scriptures that we're going to be talking about, he has come. And the question for us is, will we be like the people of Israel and look for creature comforts in this world? Or will we worship the true king? Will we embrace our dependency on him? My my encouragement for us in these last few moments is that we would really surrender and ask yourself, what does it mean for me to actually surrender in my life to him as king? What does that, how does that affect the way that I think, the, way that I, the things that I believe, and the way that I move in this world to live for his will in light of his mercy, in worship, that he's the king of kings, the shepherd of our souls, and in the surrender of our hearts and the lifting of our hands, we find joy and we find security that we long for.